This is the OT Practice Podcast. I'm Andrew Waite. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, there are roughly 54 million Hispanics in the U.S. That makes up about 17% of the population. And that means there's a good chance that OT practitioners will find themselves working with non-native English speakers. This is the topic that Christina Reyes-Smith, Catherine Hoyt-Drazen, and Susan Toth-Cohen wrote about in the December 19th issue of OT Practice. Christina and Catherine joined me to talk about this issue further, and we began our discussion with a case example. The first voice you'll hear after mine is Catherine's. Let's say there's an OT and she doesn't speak much Spanish and she gets paired, maybe, maybe she's a school-based therapist and it's part of the IEP and maybe it's a rural district and she's the only OT, so she gets paired with a child on the autism spectrum and he doesn't speak much English and neither does his family. What would the OT do in that situation? What's, what's the protocol, what's the best way for the OT to handle that? I work primarily in early intervention, which is part of um, the school system, technically Part C of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act mandates early intervention in every state. And as a part of that law, if a family is not fluent in English, it is required that the state provide an interpreter for Mm. whatever language that they may speak, Spanish obviously included. Um, But there are challenges with obtaining interpreters, which Christine and I were actually just talking about. But that would be your first route to try to obtain an interpreter. Well, yeah, what, what are the steps? How, how do you do that? Um, in early intervention services, I would contact the service coordinator uh, and let them know that I need an interpreter to help me through therapy, and they would be able to uh, put in an authorization for us to get an interpreter. In every city and state, it's a little bit different. In St. Louis, for example, a lot of the interpreters come from an organization called the International Institute, and um, I can even call the International Institute as an individual or a therapist and ask if they have anybody that is available as a translator. But it's usually not that simple? or what, what, Because you said there were some challenges, so what makes it difficult? Well, uh, sometimes there aren't enough interpreters, um, and there's always, in hospitals, they have these great phone lines that you can just call, and there's always an interpreter. But when you're doing school-based or home-based therapy, the interpreter is typically there with you. And one of the challenges with that is scheduling. And um, so that, in home-based therapy, for example, you know, we have to schedule with the interpreter and then meet for the visit and see the child together. But I've even had this happen to me Uh, I speak Spanish, so it wasn't a Spanish-speaking client, but Mm -hmm. the interpreter doesn't show up at the scheduled time, but I'm there for therapy. So you have to deal with that. Like, do you see the family, even if the interpreter's not there? Or do you wait until the interpreter can reschedule? And then even when the interpreter is there, that actually sometimes it makes a therapy visit take a lot longer. (laughs) Does does having an interpreter there change the kind of activities that you're able to do? A little bit, I think. I mean, in in home-based therapy, I think having the interpreter there sometimes is challenging for the child because there's just, there's another person there. Yeah. And sometimes having more people can be overstimulating, especially for a child with autism in the case that you were presenting. The more people in the room, 
sometimes can impact the ability of that child to participate in meaningful activities. And when there's people talking back and forth over them, well, the child may have a hard time attending to a task. So I think in that respect, yeah. Another consideration when using interpreters is the competence of the interpreter, both in English and in the language being translated. Because some may be more proficient with one language but not the other. And the other consideration is the medical vocabulary that mm -hmm. they possess in both languages. In OC, it's not as critical as it is in, say, um, emergency medicine <laughs> or yeah, sure. uh, car cardiac surgery. But um, someone who has a basic knowledge of, you know, relax or stretch or lift is going to be more essential. And then we have our own lingo as well. And so sometimes there's a little bit of education in terms of concepts uh, that we might provide to interpreters if, if that's needed. So does that mean that you as the OT, you have to adjust your language? Or, or how do you kind of reconcile that, that problem? In time, uh, at times, yes. You might you break down what your meaning is. And truly, we should be trying mm -hmm. to not use too much terminology as it is for our, our clients. But we might have to explain a concept more. So, for example, yeah, a three-dog chuck is a type of grass that does not translate very well. <laughs> yeah. So, in some situations, you may just use the word three-dog chuck and visually demonstrate it to the interpreter, to the family. And that's one piece as well, that nonverbal communication is fundamental to practice when you're working with Spanish-speaking clients or clients from other language speaking groups because they will they will observe your physical gestures, facial expressions, et cetera, et cetera, as a primary means of communication with a therapist. Mm -hmm. um, so you can use that to your advantage and provide visual demonstrations, provide um, photos whenever possible. And then, of course, there are apps which are very handy when you're in a pinch if there's just one or two words that you're trying to translate knowing that they are not always going to 100% accurately translate what it is that, that you're trying to communicate, but it can be a handy tool. And so that's why we provided a list of apps um, in the article that, that may be beneficial. What are generally the kinds of things that you are able to communicate visually and, and what becomes harder? So I'm thinking, like, like you were saying, if there were stretches or something or, or something where you had to perform a, a, an activity, that could be easy, more easily demonstrated. But my thought is, you know, if you're talking about... Well, Taking medical, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and are, are there some strategies to, to work through those kinds of situations and, and to communicate that kind of information? A major factor is your practice setting and what resources are available to you. If you're practicing in a school system that has an interpreter who can come for the sessions, that is really ideal, having an interpreter who's available to, to translate for you, or in, in a hospital, for example. But as Catherine mentioned, there are limitations with that in terms of the scheduling. There are not as many um, interpreters who are available frequently. And so um, the language line, if you are in a dire situation, there are some language uh, lines that are available. They, they are costly, but um, if push comes to shove, that's an option. One other major consideration is 
the level of communication. If you're if you're working in pediatrics um, of the child, if the child is able to speak English and, and is cognitively intact and able to facilitate that communication, then a therapist might be more comfortable working with that family. Um, in our article, we talked about a three-year-old with autism mm-hmm. who is going through early intervention with his OT. They had a translator available, an interpreter available, and the child was discharged from early intervention services. Well, the OT was faced with making a decision, does she continue with the child without the interpreter available? And she was she was on her own in a private practice, and so she didn't have any interpreters readily handy. Uh, and so in that situation with the little guy, I think she just did the best that she could. And mm-hmm. uh, through nonverbal communication, through using apps, there's a wonderful app called Say Hi that's available for 99 cents. Mm-hmm. Catherine actually introduced me to it. And um, you speak to the phone and it translates it for you directly. And it's just a, a fantastic resource. It says it out loud too, which is pretty unique. A lot of the translation services, like uh, the app, will uh-huh. do it written. Um, but if the family is not literate, Wow, that's cool. And it's pretty accurate, you found. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. I think it even has a separate, it has a Latin American Spanish and Spain Spanish. Oh, wow. Because there are different dialects. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, which is another whole giant issue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So she was able to use um, the apps. She was able to use nonverbal communication and gestures to communicate with the family. Also, often one parent will speak a little more Spanish, or a little more English than the other family member, and so um, rather than discharging him altogether, she made it work. Mm-hmm. She was able to um, work with him on motor skills during the session, provide visual demonstration, find motor activities and sensory activities. By then, I believe they had already had a relationship established enough while the interpreter was there that they were able to successfully continue that relationship for a time. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think that she felt that it was not as effective as it could have been, especially when we get into other activities of daily living throughout the rest of the week outside of that one-hour session. And so that was when she was able to find the bilingual OT Mm -hmm. to take over the services. Mm -hmm. In my case, where this little girl has autism and the mom doesn't speak English, but the child does, and the child may be acting as an interpreter at times to tell the parent what's going on. You have to be careful with that because children or family members may not translate exactly what you said, and they may not say everything that the family member says back to you. (laughs) Yeah, or they may exaggerate or underestimate something. So that's a challenge. So... In this particular case, what we did was make sure that we had ahead of time, that we had a handout with instructions in Spanish that somebody who is fluent had reviewed, so it makes sense, uh, of the activities we had planned to do during that visit. So the mom would have that. What are some some of the cultural considerations that you have to make, aside from just the language barrier? Um, you know, how, how does that come into play when working with families who speak different languages? As far as cultural sensitivity goes, I believe the best way for, for a provider to really grow in that 
aspect is to look for resources in the community that um, may, uh, events that might be going on that they can engage in to learn more about the culture in a less stressful environment, mm. um, to really learn more about the communication, the customs, I think can be very, very beneficial for someone who is um, looking to enhance their cultural sensitivity and their yeah. competence um, with a particular population. Something that I've done, you know, I've gone to a restaurant for, from that country because I'm, I haven't been to every Spanish-speaking country. Mm -hmm. And even within one country, there's many different cultures. And mm -hmm. a lot of times, if you're treating a family in a neighborhood, there, there might be a whole community from that area and often there'll be a restaurant and if you can go there and just sit and eat and have a meal I think that's a great way to get yourself a little bit aware of what the cultural customs may be in terms of space mm -hmm. uh, how do people talk to one another you know what is the food like is it spicy what is their conversational style mm -hmm. is it fast is it do you have a, a long time of salutations before you to the meat of the conversation, mm -hmm. which sometimes happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think doing that can be a lot of fun. Yeah. A great way, actually. When I think about language and uh, health literacy, I think about a personal experience that I had in uh, France as an undergrad at the College of Charleston. I was in Provence and I had the worst asthma attack I've ever had in my life there. I spoke very, very little French. <laughs> I still speak very little French. Uh, and we were out in a rural area staying at a hotel mm -hmm. where the closest hospital was hours away. Oh, wow. And fortunately, the owner of the small hotel we were staying at had a doctor who made house calls. And so the doctor came. He didn't speak any English whatsoever, but my instructor, so was bilingual with French and English. Now, not with medical terminology, but she was able to get by. And so I, as the patient in that situation, was so helpless and at the mercy of both the doctor and, and my instructor to provide that communication. But ultimately, I, I was okay with, with that. I had to trust in their system. The healthcare system was very different from what I was used to. The medications even were different from what I was used to, um, but ultimately the, the outcomes were good. But I, I'll never forget that feeling of helplessness and vulnerability. And so when I encounter a patient where there is a language challenge or even um, illiteracy from uh, someone who is not able to read in English, whether they speak a different language or not, or someone with an auditory uh, issue or with um, a visual issue, I, I always have that in the back of my head of honoring, uh, honoring that with them and providing empathetic and compassionate care to the best of my ability. And I tell this to our therapist that if you care about the client, that is going to be conveyed to that client no matter what you do. And so do not take that for granted because you can uh, be beneficial and, and effective with them if, if you're able to sincerely and authentically convey that to them.